Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The History of Scientific Ideas Written by William Wewell and published in 1858 This book looks at where scientific ideas came from as well as the thought involved in achieving them My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest Sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. As always, I am extremely grateful to all the patrons and anchor sponsors who support the show financially with a monthly contribution. Whether it's $1 or $5, your monthly contribution allows me to bring out more episodes to those who need them. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, because the podcast helps you fall asleep, please visit boytosleep.com. It would also be amazing if you could leave a review and comment in iTunes or leave the show a rating in Spotify. If you find the podcast useful, please, of course, let a friend know, especially one who may also need a good night's rest. You can say hello to me at boytosleep.com. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, Relax and enjoy the readings. History of Scientific Ideas, Volume 1 Preface to this edition The chapters now offered to the reader were formally published as a portion of the philosophy of the inductive sciences founded upon their history but the nature and subject of these chapters are more exactly described by the present title, The History of Scientific Ideas. For this part of the work is mainly historical, and was in fact collected from the body of scientific literature, at the same time that the history of the inductive sciences was so collected. The present work contains the history of science, so far as it depends on ideas. The former work contains the same history, so far as it is derived from observation. The leading features in that were theories inferred from facts. The leading features of this are discussions of theories, tending to make them consistent with the conditions of human thought. The ideas of which the history is here given are mainly the following. Space, time, number, motion, 
cause, force, matter, medium, intensity, scale, polarity, element, affinity, substance, atom, symmetry, likeness, natural classes, species, life, function, vital forces, final causes, historical causation, catastrophe and uniformity, first cause, the controversies to which the exact fixation of these ideas and their properties have given occasion form a large and essential part of the history of science, but they also form an important part of the philosophy of science, for no philosophy of science can be complete which does not solve the difficulties, antitheses and paradoxes on which such controversies have turned. I have given a survey of such controversies, generally carried from their earliest origin to their latest aspect, and have stated what appeared to me the best solution of each problem. This has necessarily involved me in much thorny metaphysics, but such metaphysics is a necessary part of the progress of science. The human mind deriving its knowledge of truth from the observation of nature cannot evade the task of determining at every step how truth is consistent with itself. This is the metaphysics of progressive knowledge and this is the matter of this present history. Of the remaining part of what was formerly published as the philosophy of the inductive sciences, an additional part described in the introduction to the present work will shortly be published. Introduction The philosophy of science, if the phrase were to be understood in the comprehensive sense, which most naturally offers itself to our thoughts, would imply nothing less than a complete insight into the essence and conditions of all real knowledge, and an exposition of the best methods for the discovery of new truths. We must narrow and lower this conception in order to mould it into a form in which we may make it an immediate object of our labours with a good hope of success. Yet still it may be a rational and useful undertaking to endeavour to make some advance towards such a philosophy, even according to the most ample conception of it which we can form. The present work has been written with a view of contributing, in some measure, however small it may be, towards such an undertaking. But in this, as in every attempt to advance beyond the position which we at present occupy, our hope of success must depend mainly upon our being able to profit to the fullest extent by the progress already made. 
we may best hope to understand the nature and conditions of real knowledge by studying the nature and conditions of the most certain and stable portions of knowledge which we already possess, and we are most likely to learn the best methods of discovering truth by examining how truths, now universally recognized, have really been discovered. Now there do exist among us doctrines of solid and acknowledged certainty, and truths of which the discovery has been received with universal applause. These constitute what we commonly term sciences, and of these bodies of exact and enduring knowledge, we have within our reach so large and varied a collection that we may examine them and the history of their formation with a good prospect of deriving from the study such instruction as we seek. We may best hope to make some progress towards the philosophy of science by employing ourselves upon the philosophy of the sciences. The sciences to which the name is most commonly and unhesitatingly given are those which are concerned about the material world, whether they deal with the celestial bodies as the sun and stars, or the earth and its products, or the elements, whether they consider the differences which prevail among such objects, or their origin, or their mutual operation. And in all these sciences, it is familiarly understood and assumed that their doctrines are obtained by a common process of collecting general truths from particular observed facts, which process is termed induction. It is further assumed that both in these and in other provinces of knowledge, so long as this process is duly and legitimately performed, the results will be real substantial truth. And although this process, with the conditions under which it is legitimate, and the general laws of the formation of sciences, will hereafter be subjects of discussion in this work. I shall at present so far adopt the assumption of which I speak, as to give the sciences from which our lessons are to be collected the name of inductive sciences, and thus it is that I am led to designate my work as the philosophy of the inductive sciences. The views respecting the nature and progress of knowledge towards which we shall be directed by such a course of inquiry as I have pointed out, though derived from those portions of human knowledge which are more peculiarly and technically termed sciences, will by no means be confined in their bearing to the domain of such sciences as deal with the material world, nor even to the whole range of sciences now existing. On the contrary, we shall be led to believe that the nature of truth is in all subjects the same, 
and that its discovery involves, in all cases, the like conditions. On one subject of human speculation after another, man's knowledge assumes that exact and substantial character which leads us to term it science, and in all these cases, whether inert matter or living bodies, whether permanent relations or successive occurrences, be the subject of our attention, we can point out certain universal characters which belong to truth, certain general laws which have regulated its progress among men. And we naturally expect that, even when we extend our range of speculation wider still, when we contemplate the world within us as well as the world without us, when we consider the thoughts and actions of men as well as the motions and operations of unintelligent bodies, we shall still find some general analogies which belong to the essence of truth and run through the whole intellectual universe. Hence, we have reason to trust that a just philosophy of the sciences may throw light upon the nature and extent of our knowledge in every department of human speculation. By considering what is the real import of our acquisitions, where they are certain and definite, we may learn something respecting the difference between true knowledge and its precarious or illusory semblances by examining the steps by which such acquisitions have been made we may discover the conditions under which truth is to be obtained by tracing the boundary line between our knowledge and our ignorance we may ascertain in some measure the extent of the powers of man's understanding. But it may be said, in such a design there is nothing new, and these are objects at which inquiring men have often before aimed. To determine the difference between real and imaginary knowledge, the conditions under which we arrive at truth, the range of the powers of the human mind, has been a favourite employment of speculative men from the earliest to the most recent times. To inquire into the original certainty and compass of man's knowledge, the limits of his capacity, the strength and weakness of his reason, has been the professed purpose of many of the most conspicuous and valued labours of the philosophers of all periods, up to our own day. It may appear, therefore, that there is little necessity to add one more to these numerous essays, and little hope that any new attempt will make any very important addition to the stores of thought upon such questions, which have been accumulated by the profoundest and acutest thinkers of all ages. To this reply, that without at all disparaging the value of importance of the labours of those who have previously written respecting the foundations and conditions of human knowledge, it may still be possible to add something to what they have done. 
the writings of all great philosophers up to our own, form a series of which is not yet terminated. The books and systems of philosophy which have, each in its own time, won the admiration of men and exercised a powerful influence upon their thoughts, have had each its own part and functions in the intellectual history of the world, and other labours which shall succeed, these may also have their proper office and useful effect. We may not be able to do much, and yet still it may be in our power to effect something. Perhaps the very advances made by former inquirers may have made it possible for us at present to advance still further. In the discovery of truth, in the development of man's mental powers and privileges, each generation has its assigned part, and it is for us to endeavour to perform our portion of this perpetual task of our species. Although the terms which describe our undertaking may be the same which have often been employed by previous writers to express their purpose. Yet our position is different from theirs, and thus the result may be different too. We have, as they had, to run our appropriate course of speculation with the exertion of our best powers, but our course lies in a more advanced part of the great line along which philosophy travels from age to age. However familiar and old, therefore, be the design of such a work as this, the execution may have, and if it be performed in a manner suitable to all time, will have something that is new and not unimportant. Indeed, it appears to be absolutely necessary in order to check the prevalence of grave and pecunious error, that the doctrines which are taught concerning the foundations of human knowledge and the powers of the human mind should be from time to time revised and corrected or extended. Erroneous and partial views are promulgated and accepted one portion of the truth is insisted upon to undue exclusion of another, or principles true in themselves, are exaggerated till they produce on men's minds the effect of falsehood. When evils of this kind have grown to a serious height, a reform is requisite. The faults of the existing systems must be remedied by correcting what is wrong and supplying what is wanting. In such cases, all the merits and excellencies of the labours of the preceding times do not supersede the necessity of putting forth new views suited to the emergency which has arrived. The new form which error has assumed makes it proper to endeavour to give a new and corresponding form to truth. Thus the mere progress of time and the natural growth of opinion from one stage to another 
leads to the production of new systems and forms of philosophy. It will be found, I think, that some of the doctrines now most widely prevalent respecting the foundations and nature of truth are of such a kind that reform is needed. The present age seems, by many indications, to be called upon to seek a sounder philosophy of knowledge that is now current among us. To contribute towards such a philosophy is the subject of the present work. The work is, therefore, like all works which take into account the most recent forms of speculative doctrine, invested with a certain degree of novelty in its aspect and import by the mere time and circumstances of its appearance. But moreover, we can point out a very important peculiarity by which this work is, in its design, distinguished from preceding essays on like subjects. And this difference appears to be of such a kind as may well entitle us to expect some substantial addition to our knowledge as the result of our labours. The peculiarity of which I speak has already been announced. It is this that we propose to collect our doctrines concerning the nature of knowledge and the best mode of acquiring it from a contemplation of the structure and history of those sciences, the material sciences, which are universally recognized as the clearest and surest examples of knowledge and of discovery. It is by surveying and studying the whole mass of such sciences and the various steps of their progress that we now hope to approach to the true philosophy of science. Now this, I venture to say, is a new method of pursuing the philosophy of human knowledge. Those who have hitherto endeavoured to explain the nature of knowledge and the process of discovery have, it is true, often illustrated their views by adducing special examples of truths which they conceived to be established, and by referring to the mode of their establishment. But these examples have, for the most part, been taken at random, not selected according to any principle or system, Often they have involved doctrines so precarious or so vague that they confused rather than elucidated the subject. And instead of a single difficulty, what is the nature of knowledge? These attempts at illustration introduced to what was the true analysis of the doctrines thus adduced and whether they might safely be taken as types of real knowledge. This has usually been the case when there have been adduced as standard examples of the formation of human knowledge, doctrines belonging to supposed sciences other than the material sciences, doctrines, for example, of political economy or philology or morals, 
or the philosophy of the fine arts. I am very far from thinking that, in regard to such subjects, there are no important truths hitherto established, but it would seem that those truths which have been obtained in these provinces of knowledge have not yet been fixed by means of distinct and permanent phraseology, and sanctioned by universal reception, and formed into a connected system, and traced through the steps of their gradual discovery and establishment, so as to make them instructive examples of the nature and progress of truth in general. Hereafter we trust to be able to show that the progress of moral and political and philological and other knowledge is governed by the same laws as that of physical science. But since, at present, the former class of subjects are full of controversy, doubt and obscurity, while the latter consist of undisputed truths clearly understood and expressed, it may be considered a wise procedure to make the latter class of doctrines the basis of our speculations. And on the having taken this course is in a great measure my hope founded of obtaining valuable truths which have escaped preceding inquirers. But it may be said that many preceding writers on the nature and progress of knowledge have taken their examples abundantly from the physical sciences. It would be easy to point out admirable works which have appeared during the present and former generations, in which instances of discovery borrowed from the physical sciences are introduced in a manner most happily instructive. And to the works in which this has been done, I gladly give my most cordial admiration, but at the same time I may venture to remark that there still remains a difference between my design and theirs, and that I use the physical sciences as exemplifications of that general progress of knowledge in a manner very materially different from the course which is followed in works such as are now referred to. For the conclusion stated in the present work, respecting knowledge and discovery, are drawn from a connected and systematic survey of the whole range of physical science and its history. Whereas hitherto, philosophers have contented themselves with adducing detached examples of scientific doctrines drawn from one or two departments of science. So long as we select our examples in this arbitrary and limited matter, we lose the best part of that philosophical instruction which the sciences are fitted to afford when we consider them as all members of one series and as governed by rules which are the same for all mathematical and chemical truths, physical and physiological doctrines, the sciences of classification and of causation must alike be taken into our account.
in order that we may learn what are the general characters of real knowledge. When our conclusions assume so comprehensive a shape that they apply to a range of subjects so vast and varied as these, we may feel some confidence that they represent the genuine form of universal and permanent truth. But if our exemplification is of a narrower kind, it may easily cramp and disturb our philosophy. We may, for instance, render our views of truth and its evidence so rigid and confined as to be quite worthless, and by founding them too much on the contemplation of mathematical truth, we may overlook some of the most important steps in the general course of discovery, and by fixing our attention too exclusively upon some one conspicuous group of discoveries, as, for instance, those of Newton. We may misunderstand the nature of physiological discoveries, and by attempting to force an analogy between them and discoveries of mechanical laws, and by not attending to the intermediate sciences which fill up the vast interval between these extreme terms in the series of material sciences. In these and in many other ways, a partial and arbitrary reference to the material sciences in our inquiry into human knowledge may mislead us, or at least may fail to give those wider views and that deeper insight which should result from a systematic study of the whole range of sciences with this particular object. The design of the following work, then, is to form a philosophy of science by analysing the substance and examining the progress of the existing body of the sciences. As a preliminary to this undertaking, a survey of the history of the sciences was necessary. This, accordingly, I have already performed, and the result of the labour thus undertaken has been laid before the public as a history of the inductive sciences. In that work, I have endeavoured to trace the steps by which men acquired each main portion of that knowledge on which they now look with so much confidence and satisfaction. The events which that history relates, the speculations and controversies which are there described, and discussions of the same kind, far more extensive, which are there omitted, must all be taken into our account at present, as the prominent and standard examples of the circumstances which attend the progress of knowledge. With so much of real historical fact before us, we may hope to avoid such views of the processes of the human mind as are too practical and limited, or too vague and loose, or too abstract and unsubstantial to represent fitly the real forms of discovery and of truth. Of former attempts made with the same view of tracing the conditions of the progress of knowledge,
that of Bacon is perhaps the most conspicuous, and his labours on this subject were opened by his book on the advancement of learning, which contains, among other matter, a survey of the then existing state of knowledge. But this review was undertaken rather with the object of ascertaining in what quarters future advances were to be hoped for than of learning by what means they were to be made. His examination of the domain of human knowledge was conducted rather with the view of discovering what remained undone than of finding out how so much had been done. Bacon's survey was made for the purpose of tracing the boundaries rather than of detecting the principles of knowledge. I will now attempt, he says, to make a general and faithful preambulation of learning with an inquiry what parts thereof lie fresh and waste and not improved and converted by the industry of man to the end that such a plot made and recorded to memory may both minister light to any public designation and also serve to incite voluntary devours. Nor will it be foreign to our scheme also hereafter to examine with a like purpose the frontier line of man's intellectual state but the object of our perambulation in the first place is not so much to determine the extent of the field as the sources of its fertility. We would learn by what plan and rules of culture, conspiring with the native forces of the bounteous soil, those rich harvests have been produced which will fill our garners. Bacon's maxims, on the other hand, respecting the mode in which he conceived that knowledge was thenceforth to be cultivated, have little reference to the failures, still less to the successes, which are recorded in his review of the learning of his time. His precepts are connected with the historical views in a slight and unessential manner, his philosophy of the sciences is not collected from the sciences which are noticed in his survey, nor in truth could this at the time when he wrote have easily been otherwise. At that period, scarce any branch of physics existed as a science except astronomy. The rules which Bacon gives for the conduct of scientific researches are obtained, as it were, by divination from the contemplation of subjects with regard to which no sciences as yet were. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this book, but I also hope that it has made you feel a little sleepy. In the meantime, I'm going to be bringing you a new episode very soon. Until then, good night.